Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We're going to hear from Tim Keller. And then John Hughes is going to join us to talk about Alpha. You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Monday and welcome to The Common Good, everybody. You're listening. (laughs) My name is Brian Fromm, along with Ian Simpkins. We are glad to have you joining us today. Ian, it's a beautiful day. It's a Monday. How was your weekend, my friend? I can't remember. Never do. It's hard to say. No, that's not true. My uh, my wife played some original music at a friend's outdoor socially distanced birthday party, and that was like the highlight of my year. She she is like my favorite singer, favorite songwriter. But you know, we got little kids, and she's running a business, right. so don't often get to hear her play. So that was that was like the highlight of my of my twenty twenty was her singing some of her songs. Highlight of my 2020. That is awesome. Can I tell you, I I looked at your Instagram story. I believe that's where you put it up. Maybe Facebook, maybe Instagram. And uh, your wife is phenomenal. She's a great singer. So well, you that's can right. pass I think, that on. I think, I think people assume that like maybe I'm overselling because I know. You know we're, and then people are like, oh my gosh, she's actually really super talented. I'm like, yeah, that's what I've been saying, everybody. It's not. And again, if I could just brag a little more, it's not just that she has like a good voice. She does have a good voice. But two additional things. It's it's a really like beautifully unique voice. Like one of the other songwriters who had never heard her was like, you could pick your voice out of a crowd of a thousand people in a heartbeat. Like there's something very unique about it. But wow. on top of that, she also happens to be just a, a really good songwriter. Like she's just a really good lyricist. So you put all that together and she's she's my favorite. That's very nice. I Most people probably do it. Like you have to say that you're you're her husband. Right, right, but right. yes. Uh, we should post, she probably wouldn't want us to, but we should post it and people can hear it because it was uh, really good. You can pass it on. It was, uh, it was really good. So <laughs> I will pass it on. I enjoyed my weekend very much until watching my favorite team, the Giants, play the Bears yesterday. And mm-hmm. uh, my, mm-hmm. our best player tears ACL. Other than that, it was a great game. <laughs> it was a pretty ugly win again. I mean, it was. Awful! It was awful. The, the Bears are the weakest two and O team there is. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, but you know, they'll take it. They beat your team and my team thus far. So yeah, the Giants are on their way to two and fourteen to something like that. So we <laughs> shall see. We're going to get into some sports stories uh, as the show progresses here. But where I wanted to start is where uh, much of our much of the news has been the last couple of days, and that's when word came out Friday night of the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the longtime Supreme Court Justice. Uh, she has been on the court since the Clinton administration, I believe in 1993, I believe. Uh, and she passed away after a uh, long battle, I guess, with pancreatic cancer on Friday night. And and later on, we're going to talk a little bit about the politics of this and the debates about should she be replaced before the election or not. But I wanted to start here. And that's this. And that's that Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, has some sort of um, cult following almost uh, more than any of the other, I think more than any of the, the Supreme court justices, like here's an anecdotal one. One of my daughter's friends a year or two ago dressed up as her for Halloween. <laughs> and so yeah, I believe uh, I'm wondering, uh, do you sense that? Have you sensed that even before she passed away, you know, she called the notorious RBG, there are documentaries made about her, and that doesn't happen with the other Supreme Court justices. So I'm curious, 
from what you've seen of her, maybe what you've read, uh, why? Why is that the case that she's got this kind of bigger standing than even most of the Supreme Court justices? Well, and we have some links that we've posted to the Facebook page that will give you, I guess, some more context behind her legacy. I think, uh, I mean, cult followings by their definition sometimes are, it is hard to explain like why, why this film or why this YouTube star or why this whatever. But I, I think honestly, her her body of work is probably the biggest reason for that. I think she was she was really groundbreaking, really trailblazing in a number of really key areas. Um, but what I found particularly interesting, so like Eugene Cho, I don't know if you know Eugene Cho. He he posted a quote of hers Friday night, which read, "Yet what greater defeat could we suffer than to come to resemble the forces we oppose in their disrespect for human dignity?" And then uh, on Saturday, he made a really interesting post. He said, I posted a quote yesterday by uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg to honor her life and passing. And some questioned my faith and asked if I agreed with her on all her decisions and views. And he said, huh? I love my wife dearly and I don't agree with her on everything. And that's a daily occurrence. If I were to dismiss all the men that I disagreed with, there would be no men to listen to. This is why I resonate with Justice Ginsburg's quote. Women belong in all the places where decisions are made. One can disagree with someone's particular view. You can challenge that view, but that shouldn't preclude you from honoring their contributions. And Justice Ginsburg lived an extraordinary life with many extraordinary contributions. That to me, I thought was a very uh, timely response because I saw a lot of the same thing. A lot of people even told me like in private, they're like, I'm afraid to post a quote by her because I'm a pastor and people will assume something about my position. And I was like, what? (laughs) That's like a, that's like a very real, I don't know if you felt any of that. I, I feel like I feel that all the time now. Really? <laughs> like, what What is going to be read into saying something positive about this person who might be? Because obviously, like you just said really well, or Eugene Cho said, uh, you're never going to agree with everybody on everything. And, you know, I know that we have a generally conservative audience on this station, and she was a very liberal uh, justice. And so people are probably like, well, you shouldn't say good things about her. But in, in – uh, she, she stood for so much that uh, that especially appealed to the next generation or even like my daughter's generation of of girls and young women that is really powerful uh, that uh, I've really seen, like I said, in her friends and people a little bit older than her uh, being my daughter. And uh, it's it's really impressive. I think as I was talking to somebody about why Ruth Bader's why Ruth Bader Ginsburg really kind of stood out, why people, like you said, had this cult following for her. I think it has a little bit to do uh, when you see the pictures of just her stature uh, mm-hmm. that often in these rooms of all men uh, or, you know, very few women. And she's like really tiny. Right. She was really tiny. And you'd see these pictures. But then hear stories where she was like the strongest, most passionate voice in the room. Uh, And I think there was something to be said there that, man, even somebody of her physical stature who stood up this powerfully, I think I think that kind of inspired especially a lot of other girls and women going, "Okay, if she can do that, so can I." I think that's part of it as well. So what do you think is sort of the uh, the takeaway now that we've had a couple of days? This is one of the weird things about not having a show on the weekend because every once in a while, stuff will happen like late on Friday. And I don't, I don't know if you yeah. feel this, you know, we've been doing this for a year and a half for better, or for worse. Sometimes this stuff happens. I'm like, I mean, I wish I could talk about this tomorrow. Like there is a, right. but the unfortunate thing. And again, obviously this is still in the forefront of our minds because there's a lot of other things surrounding it, but it is unfortunate that often stuff will happen on Friday. And then by the time you get to like Monday afternoon, sort of like 
oh, everyone's moved on, I guess. Obviously, again, that hasn't happened yet here because there's so many other things surrounding it, which maybe we can talk about later. But I'd, I'd love to know, like you, especially as a dad of a daughter, is there any yeah. kind of like conviction or takeaway when you reflect on on Justice Ginsburg's life? Yeah, it's a great question. I do think that especially for for dads and moms of young of younger uh, girls, I think there's something to be said about whether you agree with her politics or not. Right. Again, that's not the issue here. But but honoring somebody who stood up and tried to advance um, the influence of women in our culture. I think that somebody she really if you go read back, you know, a couple decades, uh, she really had to fight hard and was really um, it was a very difficult pathway that she was choosing. She went through a lot. Right. And so I do think uh, even like you said, if you don't agree with her politics, I think she deserves to be honored as someone who not only served her country well, but I think uh, serve uh, the advancement of females in our country well. So I do think she certainly, regardless of politics, deserves to be honored. Yeah. Well, coming up next, I want to read something that I saw on Facebook and you put on our Facebook page this week, some words from Tim Keller. We're going to talk about those next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this beautiful Monday afternoon. Uh, Ian, I wanted to highlight two things I saw on Twitter and Facebook this week. One of them I want to talk about much more. Uh, but the first one is this clip. I don't know if you saw this clip going around on Twitter, but when I saw it, <laughs> I, I really laughed. And I also thought to myself, ooh, this is this is kind of everything that's wrong right now. So I want you to hear it uh, just so you can shake your head as well. When you hear um, Dr. Anthony Fauci, for example, who's on the vice president's health commission uh, on COVID, say that by wearing a mask, you're helping to stop the spread. What do you think of that? He's a liar. And what? why is that? Because I don't believe the numbers. All right, Ian, do you have, do you have any thoughts about that? Or is that just you're just shaking your head right now? I mean, I, I might surprise you on this one. I don't I don't give this one a lot of credence because I think what she meant was I don't believe the numbers. And I think that that's her prerogative to not believe maybe, you know, the specific messaging from a specific camp that she's finding to be suspect or maybe less than fully transparent. I think that she's, I think she's voicing that. I don't, I actually don't think what she was meaning to say was, I don't believe numbers, like just in general (laughs) as a blanket statement. So yeah. So personally I'm, I don't, I'm actually not, I don't think I'm going to hop on the bandwagon on this one. All right. I was fully on the bandwagon, but but I'll you're being nicer to her. So we'll, we'll go with that. The second one, Tim Keller. We have quoted him almost daily for the last couple of days that we've done the show here. Uh, and we put this up at our Facebook page. I believe you did where it says, what do you think of Keller's words? And uh, thought that we could just read this. So let me read Tim Keller's post on Facebook here, because I think it's really timely. Uh, and then I would, uh, I'd love to know your thoughts. We've also had some comments at the Facebook page. Keller wrote this. He said, I've been asked why it is especially wrong for Christians to speak of their opponents in a demonizing and dehumanizing way. Historic Christians believe that our sin has made us worthy of condemnation and hell from those, uh, from those living respectable lives to those leading criminal lives. All of us fall infinitely and therefore equally short of loving and serving God in the way that is due him. Therefore, 
We could only be saved through Christ by sheer grace. The Westminster Confession of Faith 15.4 uh, say, As there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. So Christians can never feel morally superior to anyone else at all. That means, and he says parenthetically, main point, when we call out evil doing in others, as vital as that is, we can never imply by our attitude or language that they deserve God's condemnation, but we do not. Therefore, uh, as 2 Timothy 2 says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Right now, he says, our social, our very social fabric is tearing apart because of, among other things, increasing mutual demonizations on both sides. Christians must not contribute to this in any way. Those are the words of Tim Keller. And at our Facebook page, it says, what do you think of Keller's words? So, Ian, I'll ask you, what do you think of Keller's words? I mean, this is kind of in part what I was getting at with that that quote um, or that side-by-side images of Trump and Biden and then right. their childhood photos. And then I, ca- I caught some heat for that. And some people were making some interesting theological cases about what Imago Dei actually means and what a person can do to maybe mar their own Imago Dei, their own image of God. Other people were sort of drawing on like, yeah, maybe image, but not likeness. And that's a that's a sanctification formation question. Uh, so there's there's some some really smart theological nuance, I think, to a, what a lot of people were saying, at least on that post. But part of what he said here at the end, and this is this is honestly where I I think I feel the strongest conviction is that this notion that in the name of Jesus, we can demonize other people, even if what we perceive their actions to be as demonic. I mean, to out, I, I don't know, to I, one of the quotes that I included was from Walter Wink, and he said something like, evil can be opposed without mirrored. You know, like you can stand mm-hmm. against egregious injustice, but still do so in a way that recognizes to some degree the God-given dignity the other person has, even if you just think that person is vile or the actions that they take are vile. You know what I mean? There's something about, like one of the comments somebody said, and I don't have it in front of me, so I don't remember it verbatim, but they were talking about, um, you know, how how can you say that when so-and-so has overseen the placement of kids in cages? And, And that's a very real, passionate, thoughtful question i just like trying to put myself in the first century context when jesus first said to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you like mm-hmm. were things as egregious being done to people at the time that jesus first said those words probably right i i, I think the evil then was just as intense as it is now and yet in that context he says yeah and continue to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute. He also obviously talks about standing up against injustice and care for the marginalized and all of those things right. as well. But uh, to do so in a way that dehumanizes or demonizes somebody else to me, I, I think, I think Keller's spot on. 
Yeah. And so when he ends it by saying Christians must not contribute to this in any way, we've talked about this often, but I guess I'd love your thoughts on what happens when we do contribute to this, as we often do, when it's the church or the Christ followers who are doing this, who are contributing to this, what is the result, do you think, for the church and for the name of Jesus? A couple of things. Uh, I'll answer first practically, and then if I, if I have time, philosophically. Practically speaking, when we've convinced ourselves at some level that the person that we're disagreeing with is somehow less human, subhuman, like we wouldn't actually say it that way because we know better, but to demonize someone else is to put their humanity at a different level, right? So therefore, my moral superiority or my ontological superiority as one who's not demonized made to be more like a demon, well, then I, I it's the ultimate trump card. Like I can't, it'll make, it'll make me less and less uh, capable of actually hearing your perspective, your argument, because I've already decided that you're less than. So like at a very practical conversational level, that's a, that's a way to kind of keep yourself, I think, in power in the conversation. At a philosophical level, though, too, I think that, that it does begin to harden our hearts towards people. And we'll talk about this later in the show. I think this is at the nature of a lot of tribalism. It's not tribalism isn't just my tribe is great. It also tends to include all other tribes are awful. So they, they, they kind of tend to work in tandem, I think. And when we do that, when we aren't willing to hear or maybe more importantly, be changed by the stories of people who look and talk and act and think and vote and believe differently than we do, I think it creates both the hardness of heart, but also kind of like a very myopic way of looking at the world. Absolutely. And so I think Keller, again, has given us something to chew on and be challenged by. You can find it on our Facebook page. Go check it out. We'd love to know your thoughts. Maybe you think he's wrong in some way here. Maybe you think he's off base with this uh, and that now is the time to actually act the way that he's saying we shouldn't. And maybe you think that we would love to hear that. Do that at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, John Hughes, a coworker of Ian's over at Community Christian Church. Also, somebody with Alpha, We're gonna jo- he's going to join us next. We're going to talk about Alpha uh, and evangelism in general. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us again today. One of the things we love here at the show uh, is having guests. And guests, when we used to be in studio, in studio, but now... <laughs> over the phone. And with that in mind, we are thrilled to be joined by John Hughes. John, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here with you guys. Great. Well, John, why did you for, you've been on our show before, but for our audience who may not remember, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah. So um, as he said, my name is John and um, I get to be the adult ministry director at Community Christian Church's Yellow Box in Naperville. And then I also play several other roles around our organization where I'm helping to um, resource leaders and um, do research for our teaching team. And um, also recently leading a churchwide effort for Alpha um, at Community. So some people might not actually be aware of what Alpha is, and it's something that you and I talk a lot about, and it's something that I know that you're really passionate about. One of the things that I really appreciate about Alpha specifically is this idea of evangelism by hospitality. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and maybe just a quick cursory overview of what Alpha actually is? Yeah. So... um So Alpha, like maybe just a real basic statement we could say about it is that it's a place to invite people to explore faith, life, and meaning. Hmm. And um, the the hospitality part of all of that is really important, I think, because 
Um, I, there was some research that Barna came out with a few years ago that um, said, or just were real recently, that most of the people that are active church attenders and are Christians feel like if if people that I know were to come to know Jesus, that would be the very best thing for them in their life. Mm-hmm. But but then about half of them said that when it comes to actually sharing faith, like the practice of evangelism, they felt like it was somewhat wrong to share their faith with someone in the hopes that um, that person who might have a different faith system would come to share hmm. in that. So, hmm. so basically people think, Oh, I think it might be actually wrong to share my faith. And I think part of that, um, why people feel that way is because evangelism was often conceived as conquest. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like I'm right. You're wrong. I'm going to win the argument you're going to lose the argument. And when that all happens, then, then that's evangelism. Mm -hmm. And I know I, like I was trained in how to do evangelism when I was younger and it was really ask a couple questions to kind of set the person up and then kind of trick them a little bit. And then you come in with the right answer. (laughs) And I I remember the first time I used that on a friend of mine, um, he was like, Hey, you set me up with those questions. (laughs) 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 And you know, I went away going, Oh, that didn't feel very good. Yeah. Like that didn't feel very good to have with a friend. And so, um, so anyway, so I think what alpha is it's evangelism by hospitality. And the whole idea behind it is we're going to create this place where um, we're going to share the gospel. Like we're going to share um, a message about the Christian faith. And then we're going to watch this video together. And then when we're done, you as a guest who might not be a Christian, you get to say whatever you think about it. You can disagree with it. You can question it, whatever you want to say. And we're not going to argue with you. We're going to, we're going to listen to you. And Mm -hmm. we're genuinely going to be interested in just hearing more about your story and how it is that you've arrived um, where you are in your own story and journey. And so it's not about argument. It's about, Hey, we're kind of setting the table. We're going to listen and just know you a little bit. And what we find is when you do that over and over and over and over again, uh, people realize that, that the church and faith can be a group of people who are just figuring things out together and and don't have all the answers and don't have to ram it down your throat. Yeah. I know at our church, we've done alpha. One of the, real powerful parts. Exactly what you're talking about is the shared meal and being around the table before jumping into the video and having a deeper conversation. What is COVID doing to this though? Because obviously that makes it really difficult. So what are kind of the strategies in this new normal that we have right now? Yeah. So that's a great question. And um, you could go all the way back to the source of Alpha to um, Holy Trinity Brompton, which Mm -hmm. is the church right in downtown London, Kensington neighborhood. Uh, since COVID, I, th- I want to say they, they've they had over 1,600 people go through Alpha online. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. And so, and we actually have um, run Alpha multiple times since COVID has started. One was an Alpha that got kind of cut in half, you know, pre-COVID and then post-COVID. And then we've run two since then. And what is really cool is it really just opens it up for uh, people to come from wherever they are. 
Um, so for instance, um, we had um, some people who are on our team. They invited a friend, a young adult. Um, she decided to come, but was, was a little nervous. And mm-hmm. so invited her friend from Texas mm-hmm. um, to come. And she, a friend from Texas didn't really even know what she was getting herself into. <laughs> um, and they both came and they both loved it. And the friend from Texas has this, like, when we were praying for her um, virtually, um, she has this this Holy Spirit moment where she's weeping and she doesn't know what's going on, um, just having this experience of God and totally gets lit on fire. And then she starts inviting friends that come from Florida, Alaska, Canada. Um, I think there was another place uh, where, where she had some friends come from, but wow. I mean, went international. So um, we've shortened it a little bit. So that makes it kind of quick for, for guests. Um, but then it also has opened it up for people to invite their friends, to invite their parents, you know, or family members that live, you know, hours away who could never come to something like this hmm. um, if it weren't for an online option. Mm-hmm. That's awesome, man. I, I've heard you talk a good deal about the significance of of both prayer, but also listening to the success of Alpha. Can you talk to me a little more about those those two components, prayer and listening, and, wh- and why they're so important? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I we would say that prayer is the secret sauce, and mm-hmm. um, and because it's not about our cleverness, it's about a real experience of God. And so, literally, our team meetings, we do a little bit of training on how to listen. And then we, um, we pray and we put the names of people that we'd like to have come on the course in the chat box. And we just pray over those names and we keep praying for those people who, who we want to come. And then those that do come every single week, we're, we're constantly praying for them and, um, we want to listen to them. And I think probably my favorite passage about, um, like small group ministry and listening, it comes out of uh, Proverbs 20. I think it's like verse five or six. It says that the intentions of a person are like deep waters Hmm. and the wise know how to draw them out. Hmm. And, and listening is this, this key tool. Like if you're really dialed in, you really genuinely want to know how people are and where they are. If you can listen to them, ask questions, um, they'll go away feeling heard. Yeah. And you know, what a passage or a, a quote that we share all the time in our church is that, you know, listening and being loved are so close to one another that, that people can't really tell the difference. Right. Right. And I just like to say, listening is the best tool that we have to communicate love to mm-hmm. people. And so that, I think that's, those are the two things, listening and loving each other are the, are the keys to alpha. I love it. Awesome. John, we're super thrilled that you joined us here. Why don't you, with the last couple seconds we have, tell us someone out there listening right now going, Hey, I want to try this. I want to try alpha. Where can people go for more information or even to join groups? Yeah, absolutely. So because we are in this online format, you can come to our alpha if you want. If you want your church wants to try it out, you can come and check it out. Mm -hmm. Communitychristian.org forward slash alpha. You could also go to the Alpha USA page, which is alphausa.org. Great. Well, John Hughes has been joining us here uh, from Community Christian Church, talking about Alpha and evangelism and all sorts of other things. John, we really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, Thank you so much. much. It's been a great, been great to be here. 
Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on this beautiful Monday afternoon. Hope you had a great weekend. Uh, We are glad that you're joining us and hope you join us all week. Well, one of the sites that we quote often is the Gospel Coalition, a place we take articles from often. And this past weekend, the Gospel Coalition posted an article, or just today, that says this, six ways Christians can be wiser in political engagement. Six ways Christians can be wiser in political engagement. And this is a super important topic uh, for right now where we find ourselves. And because it's Gospel Coalition, we love a good list. So uh, why don't you let us know what's going on here, Ian? I I love that you take everything that you like and then just included in some kind of royal we like we we love we love love this not like you do you have a a borderline romantic relationship with this that we should should talk about a little bit later yeah this is by Kay Storp and Dave Strunk those two names go together very well by the way and they uh, really do (laughs) it's it's too bad that political engagement for Christians isn't a topic that we've ever talked about on this show so this probably won't be helpful to anybody but we're going to read it anyway begins by saying Christians can and should pursue wisdom and political engagement concurrently, but in this deeply polarized, reactive political climate, is it possible? We think so. Which right from the get-go, I appreciate their positivity because I've heard plenty of Christians say, not possible, move to the mountains. Like, what do we, you know? Uh, It's important believers don't simply mirror a broken world when engaging politics. Here are six ideas to help frame how our thinking can be more characterized by Christian wisdom than by the ways of the world. One of the ways that we've talked about it in the past, by the way, is we shouldn't just engage, but we should also elevate. Christians shouldn't just be caught in the fray, but elevating the discussion. I think this list is pretty good. So number one is anticipate. We should anticipate a tough season ahead. And I would add, (laughs) amen, we're already in it. In our churches, (laughs) we see two opposing dangers. On one hand, there are members who want pastors to comment on political issues from the pulpit. On the other hand, some hope pastors never, some hope pastors never speak about politics at all, regardless of the particular course a church or Christian leader takes. Paul exhorted the Roman church amid their own political turmoil, if possible, so far as it depends on you live peaceably with all that's Romans 12, 18 to encourage peace with others, anticipate and name this difficult political season, even if there are no plans for specific issue engagement. I know this is a difficult political season. I'd be happy to talk or pray with any of you if you have questions or concerns about it. Hmm. Failure to acknowledge the elephant in the room allows Christians in Christ-centered fellowship to carry with them the divisions of the world and unspoken suspicions of one another. What do, what do you think of that one, by the way? Because I think anticipating and naming the elephant is actually great coaching. I do, too. I do, too. Anticipating what are the questions people are going to be asking me in this season uh, to, to have that ready to go instead of being like, oh, I don't know what to do right now. I yeah, think right. it's huge. I think it's great. Number two is transcend. The church already practices politics. The differentiating factor, says Augustine in the city of God, is that our polis, the kingdom of God, is of a higher realm. Uh, when a Christian confesses the Lord of the universe who authors history and that his name is Jesus, that Christian is practicing politics. We transcend our earthly politics when we declare that the nations are a drop in the bucket, a mere dust on a scale, Isaiah chapter 40. Hmm. Jesus is king and the nations will come to naught at the end of time. To say so is a political statement. Further, to regularly take communion to honor our risen Lord is to declare an eschatological judgment on all earthly politics. It is not an evasion of our earthly responsibilities to say there is a higher politics, a higher kingdom, and a higher political community 
then the temporal nation state of America. To take seriously the language of the New Testament, we must see our membership in the universal and local church as a higher political allegiance. That's a good one. That's this idea of transcending is is really powerful one, I think. Yeah, I was just listening to an interview with uh, Josh Chatra, I think is how you said his last name, another Anglican. Man, maybe I am almost Anglican. Here. He, he wrote a book <laughs> called uh, Telling a Better Story, and he was referencing Augustine here and uh, I, the City of God stuff that I think is so maybe I'll maybe we'll have a discussion about that conversation later, because kind of the case they were making was that telling a better story is better than making a better argument. And like our modern apologetic almost requires it. So that that's neither here nor there. But I thought that was really interesting. Number three, they said is be prudent. While a Christian's allegiance is in God's kingdom, we don't abandon the uh, contingent political concerns in this life, the variables of which can make real differences in people's lives. Should a Christian advocate and vote for more or less money spent on national defense what policies help prevent women from getting to that moment of choice in abortion? Where does environmental policy steward God's creation or compromise the mandate for humans to flourish? Evaluating these issues requires prudence. Prudence, according to Aquinas, is not simply right versus wrong decisions. Prudence is rooted in the practical decision-making of everyday life. Interesting. One makes the wisest decisions with the most knowledge available, among other things. Mm-hmm. To exercise prudence is to determine which matters require silence and which require prophetic courage. God bless Aquinas, man. Absolutely. Number four. <laughs> that was funny. Number four, reframe and outflank. Much of the vitriol in our national political conversation is exacerbated by cable news, social media, and their framing power to put some issues on our radar while ignoring others. As a result, citizens who rely on mass media for political information are beholden to someone else's agenda and priorities. Christians are no exception. Hmm. Christians must think outside cultural frameworks and outflank current political considerations. For instance, almost no national politician has addressed easy access pornography, no-fault divorce laws, or foster care abuses. Mass media have co-opted our imagination such that we can't even imagine issues and solutions outside the way discussion is already framed. Right, right. Christians must maneuver around the established boundaries of political discourse and engage important issues defined by scripture. Man, this is good. Yeah, number five is localized. This one might upset some people. Who knows? Uh, another powerful effect of mass media is the natural orientation toward the bubbles of New York City or Washington, D.C., uh, making national politics the dominant subject of coverage and the lens through which all politics is engaged. Yet, Politics at the local level arguably affects our lives more. This is kind of what, uh, what was his name? David Coises was talking about, right? When he talked about political yes. imagination. Um, in Catholic social teaching, the principle of subs, oh boy, subsidiarity. Subsidiarity. I've never heard it fully in that. That's great. Subsidiary claims that political issues should be resolved at the level of social organizations most consistent with the problem. In other words, local problems should have a local solution, not a state one. State problems should have a state solution, not a national one. We urge evangelicals to know their locales and to care more about local politics issues just as much as or more than national ones. You cannot love what you do not know. That's a good line. Local politics is a missional sweet spot for churches that can make real peaceful and lasting differences in their communities. For instance, my, Dave's own church, is often involved in meeting the needs of our local school board as they request help in various school initiatives. That's a lot of the heartbeat by the, uh, behind our community cares initiatives, by the way. That's right. Last one's be joyful. Dour is the mood and unimaginative the tone when it comes to mainstream political rhetoric. 
pundits of every persuasion insist on the seriousness of the times, but does this necessitate being mean-spirited and boring? For Christians, there is a holy frivolity born of the Spirit. When the early Christians were beaten and rejected, their political response was to ignore the injunctions against them and then to rejoice. No matter how serious the issues Christians face, let's be joyful people in our public witness, avoiding the gloom and doom posture that so characterizes much in political discourse. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, after all, we have a living hope. We should carry it in. We should carry in our very countenance. That's at the Gospel Coalition, as you said, Case Thorpe and Dave Strunk. Really good. It's going to be up at, or it already is up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Give it a read. Uh, I think you'll be better off for doing that. Well, the first hours in the book coming up next, we're going to talk a little bit about the Supreme Court vacancy and what should be done. We're doing that here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court vacancy, the U.S. Open, and then we're going to celebrate World Gratitude Day. You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're glad to have you joining us today. Uh, you can find all the stuff we've talked about, interviews we've done, uh, articles we've referenced you can find those at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. And also those of you who listen to the podcast, uh, go ahead, subscribe, rate, and review. We are thankful for those of you who do that. Well, uh, to open the show in the first hour, we talked about the legacy and the life of Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, in uh, talking about why she is worthy of celebration. And we, we tried to have that conversation. Now, overhanging that now in this political world that we live in is the question of should that seat be filled before the upcoming election? And there's a lot smarter people than me uh, pontificating about whether or not that should happen. Uh, I was just watching uh, CNN a little bit before, and there are people making good reason as to why, and obviously good reasons as to why not. Here's what I want to talk about, though, Ian. I want to talk about the idea of hypocrisy, this idea of when we say one thing and do another, that we're, quite frankly, um, used to in our political landscape where people do things for political expediency and they're uh, advancing their own tribe's power, if you will, or their agenda. Uh, and nowhere does this come more obvious than what Lindsey Graham said. You might remember, we're going to play this clip here. Lindsey Graham said in 2016, uh, as justification for them not filling uh, the seat before the election in 2016 and not taking a vote up on Merrick Garland, uh, for President Obama's appointment there of Merrick Garland, uh, he gave his reasoning as to why he didn't think that should happen. And I want you to hear his reasoning back in 2016. This will stand the test of the time. This is the last year uh, of a lame duck president. And if Ted Cruz or Donald Trump get to be president, they've all asked us not to confirm or take up a selection by President uh, Obama. So if a vacancy occurs in their last year of their first term, guess what? You will use their words against them. I want you to use my words against me. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say, Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, whoever it might be, 
make that nomination, and you could use my words against me, and you'd be absolutely right. We're setting a precedent here today, Republicans are, that in the last year, at least of a lame duck eight-year term, I would say it's going to be a four-year term, that you're not going to fill a vacancy of the Supreme Court based on what we're doing here today. That's going to be the new rule. All right, so that was Lindsey Graham back explaining why there wasn't a vote to be taken. And what I find so interesting, he literally said, Ian, that if this happens under a Republican president, you can mark my words, we won't do that. Uh, And now we're on the precipice of them doing that. I'm wondering, do you just kind of go, well, it's to be expected in this political world? Or does that sort of, uh, I'll call it hypocrisy, really bother you when you hear that? Well, it's and it's going both ways, by the way. Yes, like, yes, absolutely. Four years ago, you know, I mean, they've completely they. I mean, that's unfair, I think, to to lump everybody into a you know massive wheelbarrow. But it, it's it's most certainly happening on both sides. I'm so glad you're not asking me about whether or not we should proceed with this plan or that because I I think I've mentioned numerous times on the show I almost failed my political science course. So like. <laughs> every time i read something new i'm like well that's a good point and you read something else like that's a good point too so i don't have (laughs) anything wise or insightful hardly ever anyway but particularly this issue um i have i have been trying to be really fair though in like reading the positions from both sides then and the positions from both sides now you could almost like if you typed it up like a script you could just remove the names of who's saying what and just guess you can just throw a dart like, hey, do you think this is uh, right or left saying these things? And you can guess, was this now or three and a half years ago? Or, you know, what I mean, like there's just a bizarre that part. And that's kind of what I think you want to talk about in this segment. It uh, it doesn't surprise me. It does concern me. I was thinking about that today, actually, because everything is so readily available now. Everything's recorded. Everything's televised. Everything's online. Um the only real thing that I've been able to conclude today is that they just don't care that much. <laughs> like, uh-huh. like if someone calls them out, like, hey, you said the opposite three years ago, four years ago. I It almost feels like just drown that out with the newest noise or the newest position. And I'm right. saying this again on both sides. It right. feels at times right. like the tactic is, sure, I said the exact opposite. I even said, like, oh, yeah, I'll eat my words, whatever. Uh, just drown that out with the newest whatever. <laughs> that seems to be the tactic that, you know, a lot of politics looks like right now. And uh, I don't know that it always was that way. Now, again, we didn't, you know, have Twitter and YouTube and all that either. But uh, I do find that trend mm, concerning. Yeah, there's this line here. We have an article that we'll post. Uh, Jay Van Bevel, an associate professor of psychology at New York University, said this, it is pragmatic for politicians to act like hypocrites during periods of hyperpartisanship hmm. since they otherwise might be harassed or expelled from their group for disloyalty. I think it's exactly what you said, that uh, I think what politics is now is basically an ends justify the means, right? Like, hey, here's the end that we want to have happen. So we're going to get there any way we want to, even if it means going against our word. Uh, going 180 degrees difference than what we said. Uh, And uh, I think that's what many of us find so discouraging, whether you're on the right or the left or where most people are somewhere down the middle, you're just going, oh, man, I just wish there would be this integrity. But where we've come to expect it here, as you and I are not political scientists, as you said, we are both pastors. And so I do want to turn it this way. As our culture politically and maybe in other ways continues to embrace the ends, justify the means, hypocrisy, whatever, um, 
what happens when the Christ follower does that? When the church begins to look like that, uh, what what uh, what is the danger there as as we become seen maybe by some outside the church to take on the same motives? Uh, that's tricky. So you know, I've long heard it said as sort of an excuse or at least a justification. Uh, every church has hypocrites, right? That's not a reason not to be a part of a church community, to not be a part of a faith community, because anywhere you go, you're going to find hypocrites, right? So there's there's often that side of it, like, hey, we're all sinners, right? It's the same as we're all broken. It's sort of like a sort, sort of a shoulder shrug, like, Meh, what are you going to do? <laughs> exactly. On the other hand, you know, if you take like the Greek meaning of the word hypocrite is to, is to wear two masks, right? It's, it's to be... It's like a divided self. It's like, oh, I'm this way around these people, but I'm this way over in that room or if the mic is on versus the mic is off or the camera's on, the camera's off. The The real danger for me, not the real, a very real danger of hypocrisy that I don't think is talked about nearly enough isn't just simply the social fallout. That one's obvious, but it's that we become a divided person, though. We, we aren't an integrated self when we're, quote unquote, wearing two masks. This isn't like a, a COVID pun, by the way. I'm just saying the when we're when we're inconsistent <laughs> yeah, yeah. in those. And that's not to say that we don't change our minds. I think I said this after all the George Floyd stuff. I, I said, I think we need to normalize celebrating when people change their minds when presented with new information. I think that is something. And I was kind of, you know, standing a little bit in opposition to some of the cancel culture stuff. I think that's normal and probably healthy as pastors, as theologians or politicians or leaders or teachers or whatever, yeah, I learned some things. I said that four years ago. I learned new things, uh, and my position has shifted since then. I think that's good and normal. But the like really obvious sort of flipping back and forth, a true classic uh, execution of hypocrisy, I think it, it's bad news for the church, but I also think it's bad news for us like individual, individually just as people too. Yeah, I think the uh, it, it, hypocrisy – uh, blatant hypocrisy just undermines the message uh, so quickly for people. And like you said, um, there's going to be hypocrisy and we are sinners. But I, I like how you put that. that That's not like a, a get out of jail free card. <laughs> like, hey, right. well, we're going to be sinners. We're going to be hypocrites. Yes. Uh, but where it's just intentional and brazen and continuing, we have to realize that uh, the taking on the mantra of the ends justify the means uh, can be really damaging as people are going, well, why would I want to consider that faith? Why would I want to consider that church, that Jesus? Why would I ever want to be a part of that? So we've come to expect it in politics. God help us if we get to the point of coming to expect it within the church, I suppose, yeah. is what we're saying. Uh, and I think it's a good time to look in the mirror because it's continuing to get worse. And this is uh, this Supreme Court thing, man, this is going to be gasoline on the fire for the next couple of weeks or months leading up to this election. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, buckle up. It's going to get crazy. So uh, coming up next, I want to talk about a couple things out of the sports world this week, particularly this weekend, I should say, particularly uh, yesterday's golf tournament, the U.S. Open uh, and some interesting things about the guy who won. We're friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. Uh, and one of my favorite parts of the show has begun, something that we uh, didn't even plan on doing, has happened somewhat organically, where every day Ian tells me what the holiday is and what day it is, and, and I get very excited about that. All right, man, 
what are the holidays I get to celebrate today? Although later in the day, we're, later in the show, we're going to talk about today being World Gratitude Day, but you're going to tell us some other days that today is. Well, and you know, interestingly enough, that one doesn't actually show up on my list. It's probably not that interesting, but you mentioned it like, hey, don't mention this because I'm going to tackle that one. And I was like, oh, my list does not mention that. So maybe I need to find a new source. A couple of things. It's International Day of Peace. That's an international holiday, apparently. Okay. It is uh, in Japan, Respect for the Aged Day. But uh, oh. under the under the category of weird, we have <laughs> National Chai Day, National Pecan Cookie Day, and National New York Day. So National New I don't York know. Day, okay. I don't know how you celebrate National New York Day. There's probably a joke you could make there somewhere. As one who grew up out there, you drive really fast and just be really mean to people and don't look them in the eye when you pass them on the sidewalk. <laughs> oh, that's just a Monday for me. Yeah, that's I'm, <laughs> I celebrate that York. day every day. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> basically national new york day at least if it's the city so when i came when i came out to the chicagoland area i again for those who don't know i didn't grow up in new york city i grew up about 45 minutes outside new york city in a suburb much like where i am now is a suburb of chicago and uh people drove so politely out here and people like talk to you in stores like that whole kind of midwest thing really was a thing that was a little like unnerving when i first came out here now it's very normal now that i've lived out here for 20 years but it's People who've never lived out in the East or in other places probably don't know it. It legitimately is a big difference. And so it kind of threw you off a little bit, huh? It really did. <laughs> it did. I'm like, why are people not being mean to each other here? Right. Am I in Here's the Truman Show? Example. What's happening? Here's one great example the four way stop sign, like the four way stop that we have out here. Uh, could not have existed where I grew up because <laughs> people would not have let the other people go. Oh, really? Oh, my goodness. No, it just would have been constant accident. So. <laughs> That's interesting. Anyway, a couple different things. I feel like I took in a lot of sports this weekend, not just my kids' sports. My, my daughter's playing softball. My son's playing baseball. I got another daughter playing tennis. But uh, I watched a lot of sports to this weekend. The NFL. Here's a crazy stat. You ready for a crazy stat? Did you see our highlights of the Atlanta Falcons-Dallas Cowboys game yesterday at all? A little bit. The Atlanta Falcons. Uh, blew a 20 point lead when they had a, in the middle of the fourth quarter, they their win percentage chances were 99.9% and they ended up losing the game. Wow. So the Atlanta Falcons scored 39 points and had zero turnovers in the history of the NFL teams that scored 39 points or more with zero turnovers were 441 and zero. Until yesterday. Wow. <laughs> so, wow. Uh, that is painful. Something you, you know, watch sports, you see something you've never seen before. Anthony Davis hitting a game winning shot last night was incredible. Uh, but then I watched the U.S. Open golf tournament. And I'm, I'm guessing not many people watch that, uh, <laughs> watched it yesterday. Uh, but it was won by a guy by the name of Bryson DeChambeau. And let me give you just a little bit of background on Bryson DeChambeau. Bryson DeChambeau is like the anti, uh, he does everything differently. Yeah. And he's really out there about being different. So a little happy Gilmore-ish. Exactly. He came back from COVID and he said, my new strategy, uh, his clubs are different than everybody else's. And he has only one strategy, even though he's good at all aspects of the game, hence he won the US Open. His only strategy is to hit the ball as far as he can. And he doesn't care if it goes in the rough or not. And so he's testing the limits of everything he can and people have said, you can't do that in a major. And then yesterday, he hit for the week uh, or the last two rounds, he hit only four of 21 fairways. Wow. Uh, and wow. that should be like, you're going like, to get killed at the U.S. Open. And he ended up being the only person under par. He won by six uh, shots. Uh, 
Uh, And I read an article today where Rory McIlroy and others who all hit the ball really far were like, they literally were saying, these are the pros, the best of the best thing. I don't know what to make of this. Hmm. Uh, And so it was really strange to see. And so as we do as pastors and radio hosts, I thought to myself, what's the, what's the teaching point here? What do we learn from this other than like (laughs) this guy who's kind of just kind of reinventing golf. And it was a little bit of that. I'm curious, Ian, as a pastor, leader, uh, do you look at situations in your life, church or other things and go, how can I do this differently uh, that might surprise people, but might bear some fruit, but it might ruffle some feathers? Or are you the type of person who goes, you know what? Golf has been played this way for hundreds of years. This is the way you win the U.S. Open. You hit fairways. (laughs) You don't go to the rough. This is the way you do it. Uh, What kind of leader are you when it comes to uh, dreaming and how to attack uh, your job or your calling. Yeah, I I do tend to veer more consistently in the is there a, a better newer way to do this, uh, but not all the time though. And I think I, some of that is just hopefully some maturity after you know doing this for a decade and a half or more. More is that true? Yeah, I guess a little bit more. So like when you're super young, right out of undergrad, you're you're convinced that like, oh man, we're going to, we're going to take the church world by storm. So when everyone that starts planting churches has a slogan, like church reimagined, you know, I don't, <laughs> yes. you don't have to, you know, go Doritos extreme on everything. Like that's maybe not totally necessary. And, and the older that I get, actually, the more convinced I am. And this is maybe not quite what you're asking, but like sometimes the more ancient thing in this culture is like the new approach. Like right. the, <laughs> sometimes we, we realized stuff that was already there. Like I was listening to the podcast I mentioned in the first hour and it was talking about how, you know, like when you and I were in college, everyone was talking about like postmodernism. I'm like, Oh no, postmodernism is coming or it's here. And they were making that case as if like Christianity was birthed during modernity. It wasn't like, like we've like modernity is our solid footing and postmodern. And that's like what we got to like fight against or like prepare our students for. And I'm like, yeah. no, Christian, Christianity, Jesus's teachings, all, the story of Israel was way before modernity. So sometimes the more ancient thing actually is the sort of like controversial thing that feels really new. And you're like, nope, this is actually how they were doing it. Um, but I do tend to, if left to my own devices, I do. I am more drawn to, has there a better way to do this? Which is sometimes very unwise. Sometimes yeah. it's wasted energy to like reinvent this or tweak that. You're like, nope, this actually works pretty well or maybe not even works really well that's maybe too utilitarian to talk about this is a good way for our community in this context to do this thing but uh yeah i i I actually haven't planted a church though i where do you put yourself on that continuum oh i am a status quo guy to a fault sometimes and Hmm. so uh, i had a feeling you'd answer the way you did uh and so for me the the struggle is okay let me think let, let me force myself to think of uh this through a lens of not not the lens of well this is the way we've always done it this is the way everyone does it this is the way i do struggle with that and that's what made deshambo so interesting to bring hmm. it back to the golf for me uh because here's what happens especially people who are like what you described or even more like i'm going to try to rethink this for uh for whatever reason deshambo at COVID, he said, I'm going to go put on 20 to 40 pounds of muscle, which he did uh, by drinking seven protein shakes a day. But it, when he came back, when golf came back, uh, a lot of whispers that he was on steroids. People go, well, mm. he couldn't have done that, right? Like getting that. Uh, and Bryson DeChambeau is a strange dude, man. He 
Uh, one of his on-course interviews, he said, my goal in life is to live to 130 or 140. I really think it's new, it's possible with today's new technology. Like he's trying to be at the cutting edge of everything. And like mm. you said, there's, there's great advantages to that and disadvantages. So I wanted to bring that out just to let people think, what am I? Like, how do I view the world, my profession, my family, whatever is going on around me? Uh, how do I do that? So I'd encourage you to look up Bryson DeChambeau, uh, besides being the U.S. Open champion. Uh, really an interesting character who really makes you think. So speaking, uh, here's a segue. Speaking of interesting characters who really make you think, Michael Frost. We're going to mm. discuss something that he wrote on his blog next here on The Common Good. AM 1160. Oh. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on this uh, World Gratitude Day. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in the next segment. We're going to end our show talking about Gratitude Day. Uh, but first, uh, a, a pastor, author, teacher, writer, what else can we make him? Great speaker, Michael Frost. He's a professor. Somebody who we – professor, that's the one I forgot. Uh, somebody we quote often because if you've ever heard him teach and speak or write like we're going to read here from his blog uh, – you will not always agree with him, but he will always make you think. And so uh, Michael Frost wrote at his blog, MikeFrost.net. Uh, this, uh, this is the title of his blog post. Uh, Being a family is an art and the dinner table is the place it finds its expression. What's going on with this article here? Yeah, let me read some of the beginning. Like you mentioned off air, it's a little bit longer than a normal Frostian. Frostian? A, fr- a frosty post. I, I like it. Uh, but I would recommend reading the whole thing. So I'll, I'll kind of set it up, and then I I have a guess that you and I are kind of we're going to agree with the premise anyway. But he said, yep. some time ago, I was staying in the oh boy palatial home of a wealthy couple in California's Orange County. They had all rushed off to work early that morning and left a note saying I could eat anything I wanted from their kitchen. I located the bread, but I couldn't find a toaster, so I thought I'd try grilling it. But when I opened <laughs> the oven, I found two or three expertly gift wrapped presents in there. I was a little taken aback and decided to cut my losses and buy breakfast out that day. The uh, That evening, I was talking to my host who had asked whether I'd found everything okay, and I confessed that I'd been a little thrown by the gifts in the oven. Oh, my gosh, he erupted. I totally forgot they were in there. I should have warned you. I reassured him I hadn't cooked the presents, and he explained they were there for his wife whose birthday was coming up. I hide them in there because we never use the oven, he explained. It turns out... That never using the oven is becoming a more common thing for American families. Up until COVID-19 hit, Americans were spending more of their food budget on restaurants and food delivery services, 50.3%, than they did on groceries, 49.7%. It might be even higher since quarantine and lockdowns were instituted in various parts of the country. For some perspective, back in 1970, only 26% of a family's food budget was spent on eating out. In 2010, it was 41%. In fact, the average American eats one in every five meals in her car. 25% of Americans eat at least one fast food meal every single day. And the majority of American families report eating a single meal together less than five days a week. In fact, only 32% of American families typically have dinner together all seven nights per week. Interestingly, when families do eat together, the average dinner time is 15 minutes. In the, ni- uh, in the 1960, the average family dinner time was 90 minutes. I have a friend who, <laughs> which is wild, right? I'm from a family of nine people, so 90 minutes was enough time just to pass the casserole once. That's like <laughs> that's normal for us. 
I have a friend who insists his teenage and young adult children share dinner together as a family every night. He was telling me that when he calls his son, who is a keen online gamer for dinner, he can hear the other boys playing the game tease him about how he has to go eat dinner with the family. When he asked him if it bothers him to be teased about it, his son replied that even though they torment him, they told him they're actually jealous. None of their families eat together. And he kind of goes on to talk about some of his own family and story and context. But I'm wondering... One, Brian, do any of those statistics surprise you? And two, do you guys have like sort of a, a strict dinner time philosophy at the Fromm household? So as one as a person who ate one or two meals in the car this weekend, <laughs> so, <laughs> no judgment. Here's the deal. I love family dinner and I think my family probably does it more than others. But it's I don't know anyone who's like, man, I, I wish we didn't eat together as a family. Just so much gets in the way. And that's his point here is the prioritization of it. So do we have strict? No, we do not. Uh, especially around, you know, baseball's coming up again and softball and school and all these different things. Uh, but I do know those days and COVID has made them happen more. Uh, those days where we do get to eat together as a family are just really good. I can't imagine it being 90 minutes. That is really, I want to dive into that one. What does that say culturally that in the sixties, the expectation was 90 minutes, the average. Um, but I do love family meals and oftentimes, especially dinner, things get in the way and you really have to try to guard it. And so I love what he's saying and I'm convicted by what he's saying. And I like to and I, uh, I'm i imagining you did this on purpose. So his categories here are eat simply, eat together and then eat with gratitude. And we're going to end the show talking about some gratitude. But uh, under the gratitude one, though, he says there's a saying it's the moments that we stop that give form to family life. So what are those moments for your family? When you think about it, you realize they're quite rare and they become more rare the older your family gets. Eating together and pausing to give thanks is a beautiful family tradition. Remember Bart Simpson's grace, God, we paid for all this ourselves, so thanks for nothing. <laughs> it sounds jarring and it's ingratitude, but when families never say grace, they foster the same attitude in their children. Giving thanks is a way of making our children aware of the animals and the people that feed us. It helps us acknowledge that our meals don't spring forth magically from the supermarket already wrapped in plastic. That reminds me of an interesting story. I remember going grocery shopping with uh, some students when I was a youth pastor. And one of the students had asked me, he said, why, why do we even still have farms? And I said, huh, what do you, what are you asking me? He goes, yeah, why do we still have, we don't need farms anymore. We have grocery stores. And I said, Man. We're like we were by the we were in the dairy section. I was like, where do you think the milk comes from? And he looks at me like I was dumb and he goes, uh, from the back. And I was like, Oh <laughs> no. <laughs> like there was a and this isn't I'm not saying this as someone who like grew up Ooh. in a farming family. So like as a suburbanite living in Naperville, I'm as dis- disconnected as anyone from right. like where our food actually comes from. Something that I'd I'd actually like to get better at. I'd love to know your thoughts, Brian. Even on like life stage, you know, your kids are older than mine. So part of me on one half feels like ah, we're not great at this yet, but it's because my kids are so little and they don't really understand right. it. So we're not like having conversation. But part of what it feels like Frosty's getting at here is like, no, oh, start while they're young. Like, yeah. you know, cards on the table. We both have exhausting days. So like we just barely get them into their cribs. And then my wife and I, you know, more often than not are like, you want to eat while we watch something like just to unwind a little bit. But I'm, I'm, I have been feeling convicted lately. Like, no, if we don't establish these rhythms now, while they're young, young, then they're not going to see a modeled when they're in elementary school and junior high and high school. I think there's truth to that. Now with your kids being one and two, I totally get survival mode. Yeah. Right. (laughs) I appreciate that. I totally get that. Uh, But it never gets easy. And so the, the, 
I do remember the difficulty early on when my kids were preschool, uh, early school. Uh, the, the difficulty early on was my schedule and my wife's schedule, right? Like, so it was like trying to prioritize having dinner instead of having like five meetings at church during the week in the evening time or right, something like right. that. Uh, and then it just flips and you don't even realize it flips, but one day it just flips to be your kid's schedule. Hmm. Uh, where do they have to be? And, you know, where do I have to drive you and where do I have to take you and where are you going? And, uh, and so I don't think. Uh, that's where I think he's right. If you wait into those days, especially where it's your kid's schedule and there's been no value in the shared meal and dinner time and family time being put together, uh, it's going to be next to impossible to try to, uh, it's still worth the effort, but it's going to be really difficult to kind of reverse engineer that. Um, and so I would say, especially the years you have coming up, and I think you'll be really good at this, but as they get to be, you know, four, five years old, uh, I think, my word of wisdom to you would be to prioritize your schedule hmm. to have those moments because it's not going to be any easier as their schedule begins to yeah. work against you as well. This is also, I mean, kind of the same concept. This is why we, uh, as long as our kids are in the house, we try to do vacations together. And that right. might be like, well, good for you. Well, no, sometimes it's you and I, I was going to put an article in here this week about how much vacation time never gets used by people. Oh, yeah, uh, right. But, but, but like saying, you know what, we're going to do this because this is one of the spots where our family will have this intensity of being together and there's going to be shared experience. And what Frost is saying, like those kinds of things are awesome, but the dinner table can be the day in and day out right. of that experience. Uh, and so I think this is great. He say he calls a shared meal therapeutic. It's life giving. He says it might be a small act and require very little of us. But when you look back on your lives together, you'll find mealtimes were some of the happiest moments of your life. Yeah. Uh, and so parents out there, I would encourage you wherever you're at uh, to make that a priority. Well, coming up next, as we said, today is World Gratitude Day. So we're just going to talk about uh, not just what are we thankful for, but how do we grow in gratitude? That's how we're going to end the show next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. And Ian, that's why we love live radio, man. Mm -hmm. Our producer, John, bringing us back in with some earth, wind, and fire, September 21st. Uh, his creativity does amaze, doesn't it, Ian? It's, I, I would pay to see him play and sing that song. If we could make that happen, that would be, that would be a crowd pleaser. Maybe we could get that uh, finagled into a Cubs game. A Cubs playoff game, even now that they're about to enter the playoffs. Mm -hmm. Yes, those you don't mm -hmm. know, our producer John, one of the organists at Wrigley. I feel like he could get that in there. And uh, okay, we're going to work on it. But John you, plays you, that song today is September the twenty first, uh, which I learned today is something called World Gratitude mm -hmm. Day. And I thought it'd be it'd be good to end the show talking about gratitude uh, and and ways not just what are you thankful for, but how do we grow in gratitude? Because something we obviously talk a lot about. Uh, on the show is in this culture we're in, there's so much angst, there's so much anger, there's so much division that sometimes uh, things like gratitude and thankfulness uh, and even joy uh, can really kind of go by the wayside. And so uh, I want to talk about, Ian, how do we grow in gratitude? And then maybe if we have time, we can, you know, we can get sappy and talk about some of the things we're thankful with, some of the things we have gratitude for. Uh, but if someone says, hey, pastor, I'm 
Uh, I understand gratitude. I understand the concept, but uh, I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling it. And I don't really know uh, how to even be somebody who feels gratitude. What would you tell them? Oh, gosh. Good question. I think gratitude is... It's one of the, I think it's, I see it like as a spiritual discipline, to be honest, because I feel like so much Mm, of culture, East and West, modern and ancient, uh, veers away from gratitude. I I don't know that I've personally met a lot of people who are just naturally grateful. I have met them. I do think they exist. Some people, they just, they stop to smell the roses. They see everything as a gift on loan to them from a merciful and kind God. Like I know people like that. But the vast majority don't seem to be hardwired like that, myself included. So I think, you know, from from a very base level, we talk about like giving thanks at the dinner table, like Mike Frost was talking about in the last segment. But more profoundly than that, though, I think it's it's easy to not be grateful because that tends to be the streams that our culture sort of, you know, invites us into like, well, if nobody around me is being grateful, then it must not be that big of a deal. I think, and I've, I've read extensively over the years, like the the science of gratitude, what it does to us physiologically and neurologically. There's an article from Forbes that I remember reading a couple months ago about like, here's just some of the straight up benefits. Like you don't even need to be selfless about it. Here's, here's how gratitude actually betters you as a person, which I always find so interesting because some of it's like, yeah, even if you don't even share the gratitude, with anybody, even if you keep it to yourself, there's these these very real physiological benefits, and uh, I think I think that's probably what people don't hear enough. Actually, sometimes gratitude can feel like like I heard someone recently say, "Well, if if I'm grateful, then it means that I'm like okay with every circumstance before me." I'm like, I don't think that's true. I don't think gratitude means well. Then I have no need to stand against injustice or I have no angst or anxiety over like our current political climate or my church or whatever. We tend to think they're like mutually exclusive. Like to, well, to be grateful means, well, I guess I must be fine with everything. I don't think that's what it's about at all, but I do think assuming a posture of gratitude and maybe particularly in a Christian way of thinking about it, that sees everything that I have as a gift on loan to me from God that I'm to steward well in the world that will shift the attention away from man, I wish my house had a thousand more square footage or I wish I was making 15 grand more or I wish my kids would do this or I wish I was getting this recognition at work or whatever. That's natural, but I think gratitude, especially like consistent gratitude can work to kind of untangle some of those things in in a really helpful way. Yeah, so what are some, uh, do you have any practical ways that you try to grow in gratitude in your own life to take that sort of posture that you're talking about? Yeah, man, there's there's a couple of things that I, I think are really easy and don't require like a lot of overhead or skill or like I, I've told the story of my great grandma who when I was 13 she was closing in a hundred and I was always amazed at like how she had such a vibrant prayer life when at 13 I like I couldn't care less you know and she said I just I just pray alphabetically I like I run through the alphabet and I thank God for things for each letter of the alphabet and she would do that two or three times like she would start with air thank you God for air that I breathe air right now. Thank you, God B for birds that I can hear singing out my window right now. Like she was just an incredibly inspiring, but also just like deeply anchored soul. And she would like that. It's always stood out to me. One of the things we did at Poplar Creek that was a part of all of our staff meetings was before we dove into any business, any agenda driven stuff, we nominated people that we were grateful for 
uh, and we wrote on thank you cards. And I'll tell you what, man, not only would that like change the tone of the meeting first, but then the gratitude that the people showed for the card we gave them, it didn't matter. Sometimes it was someone that was like, like they volunteered a thousand hours of their time and we wrote them like a, a quick little card and they would come back like in tears, like, thank you for the card. And I'm like, you just gave like a lifetime of, of your time. Like it was, you know, it was amazing to me how much that meant to people, which again, makes you grateful all over again. I've talked about like a gratitude journal, that kind of stuff is really helpful. There's things like for me, trying to be more consistent with my running, like committing some of the time during my run to like think through things that I'm grateful for to like turn that, you know, into a, into a prayer time. Having little kids has been like a real joy because I can just, you know, I'm at work. So a lot of times the questions that I'm asking them are like, what did you see today? Where did you go today? And like that trying to instill in them, like, Oh, I did get to go to a farm and see a horse. Like trying, trying to really (laughs) instill that in them has made me more grateful, which has been really helpful. I mean, and there's a lot of books and there's volunteering, you know, giving back is a really great, easy way to just sort of, to see it as a spiritual discipline, as a, as a formation issue. I think gratitude, we tend to think of it like as, like falling in love, like, oh, well, I'll just, I'll just happen upon gratitude if, if the stars so align. I'm like, I don't buy that at all. I think we can actively go after gratitude uh, as a discipline and gr- I think we can grow in it and I think we can help each other grow in it. So I, I don't know if you have stuff that you, you tend to go to that has been helpful for you or not. Yeah, you, you, you brought up a great one. My kids, when I talk about them and to them about, you know, what they have in their life, they, it just reminds me, it, it kind of shakes me back to what I can be thankful for. And, hmm. and that's an important one. I love to just go for walks and um, think about um, and pray about just the things, the bigger picture things in my life, because sometimes on the day to day aspects of my life, I can feel overwhelming and like, oh, things are hard. But then when I'm able to step back a little bit, for some reason, I can do these on walks. I think it's probably what you do when you run. Right. And so uh, be able to step back a little bit and go, what what is what do I have to be thankful for? And actually give thought to that. So many things flood my mind that I usually come back from those walks going, all right, I feel pretty good. Like you said, this doesn't mean that you don't have any problems, right. right? Like this doesn't mean that you everything is just great and we just pretend that everything is fine. No, we're still in the midst of a pandemic and there's still lots of things to worry about out there. But to be able to focus on some of those things uh, that cause you to be thankful and to have gratitude, mm-hmm. I think uh, is not only so important, but it's biblical. It is throughout the Bible and I think it's there for a purpose. So uh, we'd love to know what you're thankful for. We're ending today just with that uh, in mind, today being World Gratitude Day. Uh, what is it you're thankful for? Uh, even if your present circumstances aren't great, even if things are hard right now, what are some things that you can still be thankful for uh, that you can give a little bit of focus to? So hopefully that helps. Uh, it's World Gratitude Day uh, and and we're thankful. Uh, how about we end this way? We're thankful for our listeners, right? We're thankful for the people yeah, who podcast absolutely. and who listen. We really are glad for the time that you give. Well, uh, Monday is in the books, but God willing, we'll be back for uh, from four to six tomorrow. We'd love to have you join us either live on the radio or via the podcast. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Have a great day. You've been listening to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life.